Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. It's the Wonky Show. We're talking ministerial threats, staff use of tech and opposition fees policy. It's all coming up. The idea that the bill is a sledgehammer being used to crack a nut is expressed by those who seem stuck in the past with a dismissive, oh, it was ever thus, nothing to see here. We keep hearing the same evidence from one KGE that a 10,000 events involving external speakers, blah, blah, six were cancelled. But these no platform stats miss the important point. Comments from opposition benches here ignore the corrosive rights of self-censorship. Welcome to The Wonky Show, your weekly way into this week's higher education, news, policy and analysis. I'm Wonky's editor-in-chief, Mark Leach, and joining me to rewind the HE policy tape from another busy week is three fabulous guests as always. In Manchester, it's Martha Haller, Head of Registry Services and Business Intelligence. At FutureWorks, Martha, welcome in your highlight of the week, please. My highlight of the week has been working with the other members of the Schrock Committee. Uh, we've got our first in-person event down in London next week about data futures. And we're just so excited to be getting back to face-to-face events. In Canberra, it's Johnny Rich of PUSH and the Engineering Professors Council. Johnny, your highlight of the week, please. It's got to be rocking out to Sister Sledge doing an amazing set in Dulwich Park last weekend. And walking in the wilds of Exmoor, it's David Kernhan or DK to you and me. Uh, DK, your highlight of the week, please. Not so much a highlight, but I think the story about Boris Johnson in this week's uh, Private Eye is a moment in the the storied history of our collection of island nations. Mm, Yes, look away now, as it said uh, in the magazine. Um, Right, we start the week with a rather ominous threat from the Minister for Universities in Westminster. Johnny, what on earth is going on? Yeah, so... Michelle Donnellan, the university's minister, has used the excuse of freedom of speech to write a letter to vice-chancellors going about as far as the law allows her to, to threaten them over something that she has no say over. And as far as I can see, actually has nothing to do with freedom of speech. But she's got it into her head that something called the Race Equality Charter is rampant wokery. Um, on which universities are squandering untold amounts of taxpayer-subsidised tuition fees. Um, but what the Race Equality Charter actually is, for those who aren't familiar with it, is an eminently sensible voluntary scheme to help universities tackle some of the severe racial imbalances in higher education, like, um, for example, the recruitment gap for black students, the earnings gap for minority ethnic graduates, or the fact that uh, less than 1% of all professors in the UK are of black heritage. Um, so the charter, it, it doesn't demand radical decolonization of the curriculum. It doesn't demand the study of 
critical race theory. It doesn't demand positive action recruitment pro- practices. It doesn't demand anything because that's not how it works. Instead, it provides a framework for a university to monitor what it's doing to combat discrimination and to see whether that's working and to get ideas and support about what else they can do. So when Michelle Donnellan tries to make this about free speech, she she is indeed doing exactly the opposite of being woke she she's she's demanding to be unconscious demanding to be unconscious about the actual measurable discrimination in the system um in her letter she quotes a tweet from susan lapworth uh, the acting ceo of the ofs um, and I've, I've got the tweet here i um it says I'd expect autonomous universities to be thinking carefully and independently about their free speech duty when signing up to these sorts of schemes. Can I just point out that when a regulator starts a sentence with the words, I'd expect, it's a bit rich if the next word is autonomous. Um, anyway, this her letter has also been um, roundly criticised in implicit terms by her predecessor, one Chris Skidmore, um, who also tweeted, and I've got his here as well, the racial disparity audit conducted by the government in 2018-19 demonstrated that black and ethnic minority students with equal A-level grades to white students perform 18 points below the average at degree level. This inequality needs to be tackled, not treated as a culture war. It, it is the culture war, though, isn't it, DK? Because... Um this you know the framing of the race equality charter is somehow something since then we've talked about it on the show before actually michelle donlan has written about how much she doesn't like the race equality charter and there's been lots of people briefing similar things to the telegraph in the last couple of months so we, we have discussed this issue before but this is now the first time the minister's come out and, and kind of essentially told universities to not sign up to it um in, in as many words, essentially, she's you know she's she's dangling the kind of prospect of uh, you know gov- government funding um, as uh, as as a, as a sort of um, a stick, I guess. But it's not clear exactly how they would how they would do that. Um, but it is the culture war, isn't it? That's why that's why they're doing this. It's not about any of the sensible reasons that Johnny just set out for why we need the race equality charter. Well, she has basically said the quiet, the uh, quiet bit out loud, hasn't she? Um, so this story comes from a series of comments from one of the slightly more unhinged groups of conservative MPs that seem to be setting government policy at the moment. And I think it does also tie in with the number 10 current emphasis on um, wedge issues. The day that the plane failed to take off to Rwanda because of legal challenges, that was seen by many in the government as a victory because it presented a, um, a wedge issue um and this feels like another instance of that all um ministers have been told to uh push on wedge issues in their particular portfolios at the moment so my suspicion is we are going to see a lot more of this in the coming days and weeks um it's difficult to understand what this letter is meant to achieve uh there are quite a lot of universities who are already signed up to the race equality charter and many have already 
um, received awards. It's not clear if she's expecting them now to pull out of those awards. And there is an impact potentially on university finances as well. It's a point I've made on this podcast a couple of times before. But in many cases, um, higher education providers get access to finance in part by making promises around the environment, uh, society and governance, uh, promising in effect to do good so that um, the people who run these funds can include them in slices of the fund that investors can see is actually making the world better. If um, a commitment to uh, gaining this race equality the uh, charter was a condition of some of this finance. A university decision to pull out would potentially change the terms of the finance and actually make borrowing more expensive. So even though this feels just like a culture war thing, it would actually have a serious impact on a fair number of universities and other providers. Mm. Well, the, the, the overwhelming um, kind of response that is, is stuffing my inbox the last few days is, is, is essentially along the lines of, you know, what, why should we listen to another word that Michelle Donnan has to say about anything at this point? Um, what, what, what would you say to that? Um, I mean, I would agree. Um, I think that when this landed, I, on my first reading of it, I was a bit confused as to why she wanted us to not engage with the Race Equality Charter. The letter itself didn't really explain anything. And I generally feel that if you have to turn to Twitter to get that sort of explanation, it may not be a particularly well thought through. Um I'm also quite dubious of any letter that references MPs in the media, um, but not students or any other stakeholders involved. Certainly, as a when we're looking at small providers, we are already taking huge steps to try and improve our efficiency, given the current economic climate and everything else. So, the insinuation that we're not already doing that is is a bit it's a bit on the nose for a lot of the providers, I suspect. Um, and the other thing I noticed in it was the idea that um, she's telling us that, A, that we have the um, part of university life is to teach students how to think critically. But they're also reminding us that we actually do need to think carefully about these things. It's like, well, if we're surely we're already doing that, if that's what one of our purposes in life. Yes. For think, for, for think carefully, you can kind of read stop doing it um i mean johnny this, this seems like a bit of a uh, a bit of a sea change in in the sector's relationship with government i mean there's been lots of lots of these sorts of moments over the last few years but i feel like something quite dramatic has shifted in the last uh well really that with with the, with this letter i mean the, the 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 nature of that relationship seems to have changed to something almost completely unrecognizable um over the last couple of years hasn't it yeah i think you know the way that Chris Skidmore um, stepped in on Twitter to go as far as he could um, in terms of an explicit attack on his successor. And also the way that uh, I think we're going to be talking later about the um, freedom of speech bill in the House of Lords. Two other predecessors of hers have come in and weighed in to attack this bill. Um, It shows the division and the change in the way that the the current government is operating versus how it worked just a few years ago. Um, And it's more than just a wedge issue. You know, this dog whistle politics. Bear in mind, this is the race equality charter. 
she is opposing race equality by saying universities should not be signing up to this or trying to imply that they shouldn't this is the it's the sort of innocent well-meaning and effective activity that private businesses spend millions on trying to um, improve their inclusion and diversity because they know it is good for business it is good for business for universities too it's good for students it's good for academics and it's good for the country if we have race equality within our academic institutions and this is we're very lucky to have advanced he we're very lucky to have such an effective system of providing support for better race equality um, that doesn't interfere with autonomy. Getting that balance right is really difficult. Right. Well, this brings us on to the debate over the free speech bill, which reached its second reading in the House of Lords um, just this week as well. Uh, as Johnny mentioned, four ministers um, were lining up to criticise the bill and the minister's um, approach. And there was some really interesting, uh, really interesting debate from different quarters. Let's hear a clip. How severe and widespread a problem in any case is this? for the universities, over 100 universities. Is it a challenge we face uh, worse than in previous cycles of student activism, which universities have come through without requiring heavy-handed government intervention? Gavin Williamson, in his preface to last year's white paper, specifically deplored attempts to block ministers from speaking and ambassadors from visiting universities. The very first lecture I gave as a newly appointed lecturer at Manchester University in January 1968, was disrupted by a protest at the suspension of the student for assaulting the Secretary for Education the night before. I went to a ceremony at King's College London some weeks ago to unveil a portrait of one of the students who had disrupted my lecture, who has since become an advisor to governments and a globally recognised <laughs> academic. Some noble lords may be old enough to remember the Stop the 70s tour, and the wider student campaign against apartheid South Africa. My wife can still remember the song she and others sang as they blocked the South African ambassador from speaking at Oxford University. I've just read a memoir of the Stop the 70s tour which confirms that at least two of its most activist members have since become members of this House. <laughs> Last year, I spoke to a number of vice-chancellors about this bill and the issues it raised. One retired VC reminded me that he struggled to maintain order on his campus in the face of deliberately provocative speakers invited by the then chairman of his student conservative association, one John Burko. A current <laughs> vice-chancellor told me that the biggest problem of this sort he faces is keeping the peace between his Chinese and Hong Kong students. There is nothing new about student protest or arguments about the limits of freedom of speech in universities. And I have been an academic for 40 or more years. The question is whether this imposition of a heavy external burden of intrusive regulation with the introduction of a new tort that will transfer large sums of money from university funds to lawyers through litigation is a proportionate response to the limited number of unacceptable instances we have seen, above all related to trans rights. I suggest that the proposals are disproportionate. This extension of state interference over autonomous institutions is authoritarian, not conservative. What is the government doing about what so many academics feel to be the real threats to their freedom? 
precarious employment, exactly. lack of representation on governance structures, exactly. directions as to which research to undertake or not, and political interference, my lords, including the attack on the arts. Mm -hmm. My lords, you can't cancel cancel culture any more than you can realistically know platform ideas you detest in the age of the internet. But you can, however, demonise the courts, the arts, the academy, and even the young in a culture war of divide and rule. Some speech is free, it would seem, and some rather more expensive. That's the real message behind this Orwellian bill. And we also heard from noted friend of the show, uh, Baroness Fox, uh, about her views on, on our research on, on freedom of speech. The idea that the bill is a sledgehammer being used to crack a nut is expressed by those who seem stuck in the past with a dismissive, oh, it was ever thus, nothing to see here. We keep hearing the same evidence from 1KE that 10,000 events involving external speakers, blah, 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 six were cancelled. But these no-platform stats miss the important point Comments from opposition benches here ignore the corrosive rights of self-censorship that the noble Baroness Baroness de Souza raised. You don't have to be deplatformed to feel its chill wind. NUS has a guidebook called Managing the Risks Associated with External Speakers. And if you are an external speaker, which I have been many times, you're asked to sign a form promising not to say anything that would make the audience feel uncomfortable. So the message is, watch what you say. Well, to that, Claire, I'd say you missed the point. And um, I think inviting the numbers of cancelled events goes to the absolute heart of uh, what the government is trying to do here. Also, it's pronounced wonky. Thank you very much. Now, DK, this was an interesting intervention, wasn't it? Um, the uh, from, from the laws this week. Do you think they're going to make the bill any better? So for me, well, actually, one of the key things is not one that we've he heard. It was a little comment from David Willits, who said he had a number of issues with the bill. And the first one was, how is it going to work? And I mean, usually in this kind of progress of a bill, these issues, the actual practicalities are sorted out in the line by line stuff that happens in the committee. But because of the terrible way the committee was handled, I think it was somebody like Peter Bourne in the chair and Michelle Donnellan just turning down everybody's um, amendments. Uh, we didn't really get that. So, I mean, once again, we are looking to the Lords to um, add some actual practicality to legislation. A similar thing you may recall happened in other legislation um, in the previous uh, term. So, um, apart from the practicalities, the kind of responses we're getting is the government's issue with definition. Um, it's not clear yet what free speech within the law actually is. Um, and defending, depending on the way that is actually drawn out, we are potentially going to see clashes with other legislation, particularly the online harms bill, which is also going to be coming through parliament in due course. Um, it's fair to say that the Lords aren't impressed with the bill in its current statement. 
Um, there are going to be lots of amendments at committee stage. I'm looking forward to finding out who's going to be on the committee. We should hear that in a week or so. And also at report stage and third reading in, um, both cases and the Lords, we can expect amendments, um, at that point. Um, I mean, actually where that leaves us ties in with some of the speculation about, um, Boris Johnson and whether or not he's going to call an early election to get out of the parliamentary scrutiny that is expected about him, uh, supposedly misleading the house. Um, when we've not really got time to get this properly finished before about September. And if we're looking at an October election, then this is a bill that could actually fall and there are no um, opportunities for carryover across a general election. So in all honesty, I feel like that's probably the best thing that could happen to it. But you can still apply to be the director of free speech and academic freedom uh, pending the um, pending legislation going through, can't you? Uh, indeed so. It's kind of slightly odd that they've advertised that so far in advance of the legislation being complete. Uh, you've got the idea that people are applying for a role in which the job description and indeed the appointments process may uh, change substantially. One of the key things the opposition are pushing for is that for such a key re- um for such a key role this cannot be a political appointment we don't want the equivalent of james wharton uh turning up and having this role while having the government whip uh so that's another thing to keep an eye on i don't think we're going to be getting an announcement of the the uh post holder for this role for quite a long time yet Quite, got to say, it's quite tempting to apply because obviously the job will be impossible to do and it's part time. So, you know, I could carry on doing all my other I was going to say, and, yeah, you could fit and, it around and, your portfolio quite nicely. I was, well, I've been saying you know, so I, I can, I, I can do it without actually making any effort whatsoever. It's probably the best job anyone could do of the, out of it, you know. Well, as, as one key research shows. As much as not trying. As wonky research shows, there's only been a tiny, tiny number of cancelled events and um, actual free speech uh, clashes on campus are, are extremely, extremely minimal. Um, uh, so, yes, as you say, you don't have you won't have to work very hard at all. I wouldn't have thought um, you can read more about all this too much, probably um, on wonky.com. Um, and also put links in the show notes to that research that was exercising Baroness Fox so much in House of Lords this week. Now, let's see who's been blogging for us this week. Hi, I'm Ant Bagshaw, Partnerships Director at OES. I've written for Wonky this week about disruption in the education sector. Not looking too much at new entrants, but thinking about the disruptive forces that are changing how value is created and distributed in education. For example, we looked at confidence in credentials, how technology is changing learning and teaching, and how lifelong learning can be supported through connecting the experiences of students and employers back into the design and development of curricula. We'll put a link to the report in the blog, so take a look and let us know what you think. Now, this week we published new research with Cortex about staff views of technology. DK, run us through it. So uh, it's been a meme, I guess, since uh, the worst days of the pandemic that everything has uh Everything has changed and we are looking at a largely or entirely digital future. 
Uh, obviously, the key pushback from that has come from the government, who have decided that they quite like the uh, publicity and goodwill that calling for a return to normal, um, whatever normal happens to be in anyone's particular imagination. Um, so we were very pleased to have some research that we did in with the support of our friends at Cortext, looking at the views of academics on using technology to improve and change the way we do uh, 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 teaching. It's only a small sample. It's a self-selecting sample, but these are experts in learning and teaching. These are people who do and think about this stuff every day. Uh, now the headline would be, we are, academics are expecting significant change to both what providers are doing and what providers are intending to do using technology. But they're also incredibly conscious that providers already have a lot of technology. And one clear thing that came across is that academics are very keen that, that any new technology that comes in works seamlessly and integrates fully with technology already in use. There's no interest in buying a new shiny ed tech thing if it means we have to rewrite everything else we do, especially given the staff concerns about their workload and about the opportunities they have to actually reflect on their teaching in um, what is becoming an increasingly pressurized and in many cases overworked role. Um, it's not all plain sailing for... Uh, Technology, obviously, there are um, a minority of academics that are concerned about the potential pedagogic impact of using lots of online resources and the way this changes the student experience. But we can be clear that where these changes are made, academics are doing them because of the needs of students and the primary concern in um choosing and using um, digital support for learning and teaching is student academic engagement, student retention and student success. Um, Martha, does this back up what, what your experience at, at FutureWorks? I mean, I'm also really interested to, to know how um, you handle technology as a, as a kind of really, really small provider. Um, well, a lot of our technology is actually more just part of the teaching and learning process. Uh, obviously, with creative media being very technology heavy, what we found in as a result of the pandemic was that we moved a lot more of our support and communication um, offerings online for students. So we tried to do it in a way that students could be comfortable with it. Uh, we ended up using Discord quite a lot for communication, not only with students, but uh, amongst staff as well. Um, and we found that that actually worked really well as a way of supporting them Um but also not actually changing the way that we do our actual direct teaching. Um, we've gone back to face-to-face -face for most stuff now, but that is very much down to the nature of the subjects that we are teaching. Um, if we were doing big lecture theatres and, and things, then that, that might be different. But certainly for what we try and do with our students and give them that one-to-one -one support and tuition, face-to-face um, -face is, is better. But... Um, we are always keeping an eye out on what new technologies that might be available for us that would help improve that where possible. Mm -hmm. Johnny, what, what jumped out at you from this research? A uh, couple of things, actually. Uh, I mean, firstly, the general lesson that the pandemic gave us an opportunity that we, you know, we didn't, nobody wanted, obviously, but it, it did 
gives an opportunity for an experiment in a lot of stuff that um, people hadn't tried before. It forced it on us. And most importantly, it meant that the fear of failure was um, was reduced in that people had no choice. They had to give it a go. And so sometimes some of those experiments weren't effective. They didn't work. But it's really rare in higher education teaching practice to have a chance to fail at anything. The stakes are too high for individual students and for academics and for whole universities. So it would be nice if we can think more about how can we learn from mistakes? How can we afford to make mistakes in the system and and learn from them when it comes to teaching practice? Because that's how you really get innovation. Because if all you're ever allowed to do is stuff that's been proven to work you'll never change the other thing that jumped out at me um was some of the stuff on digital poverty and it was really reassuring to see that uh, this is a significant concern for many academics because um digital delivery is fantastic for access for some people it can widen access for some people but we mustn't forget that it denies it to others. And we are getting to a point in society where having a computer and broadband, they're just basic utilities. And until that utility becomes a universal right, the future of teaching is always going to have to be blended, hybrid, call it what you want, in order to maximize accessibility for those where digital helps and where digital hinders. Uh, yeah, I think I should mention for those of us who have spent a long time in the world of learning and teaching in higher education, there's some interesting findings here on the ways in which academics uh, come up with the inspiration to um, experiment and make changes in their teaching practice. I mean, back in the day, we had stuff like the old learning and teaching support network, subject centres, the Institute for Learning and Teaching in Higher Education and all of the other support for teaching quality enhancement in England that seems like it is no longer a thing that we uh, do or care about as a nation in any significant way. Um, it turns out academics are getting the inspiration primarily from networks of like-minded academics in their department and subject, that the kind of national uh, pushes to do certain things or not to do certain things don't really have an impact in the lecture theater, in the seminar room, in the lab, or in the studio. Um, and this is, um, it's encouraging, but it, it does make me think that there is some work to be done in bringing together like-minded academics in national subject area networks to support high quality teaching, which, uh, feels like an idea from the Deering report, which is probably because it was. Can I just say, um, engineering is quite good at this. <laughs> I would say that, but engineers are engineering academics during the very early on in the pandemic. Um, a couple of, um, engineering academics, Bev Gibbs and Gary Woods got together to start an initiative that, um, the EPC then got involved in, um, and we called it Emerging Stronger. And it was to try and capture case studies of different experiments in teaching practice that were going on and to learn from them. And 
these were published um, in a collection, and then we revisited them a while back, a while later, to see what the impact was. And I was really reassured some that some people were quite happy to report, yeah, it didn't work, <laughs> and we've learned from that. And that's what I meant about the the learning from failure, which is can be mm. just as valid, if not more important. All this season, we're working with the Association of University Administrators to bring you dispatches from the desks of hard-working HE professionals around the country. And this week, we caught up with Alison Levy, who discussed her work on the challenges of balancing the student experience with dynamic working. One of the key things that we want to ensure is that the students on campus get as good, if not better, service than they have prior to when the pandemic happened. One of the best things that we've been doing whilst working on this is trying to see where there are lessons we've learned over the last two years that will really improve how we currently work with students so that we found a lot of our international students really like using virtual methods of talking to our tier four advisors and working through some of the issues they've got rather than having to come onto campus. So that is something we definitely want to keep, but it's in parallel with working on campus. It's not instead of. And whilst we're working through all this, the biggest challenge is to make sure that we are focusing on what the students want. So I've read lots of articles about how great it is for staff well-being to work from home. And I completely buy into that. You know, I've certainly found that, you know, having better work-life balance has been wonderful. But to me, the challenge is this isn't about us as staff. This is about giving value to our students and making sure that they get the best possible service and experience that they can have. They are paying their tuition fees. They expect a service. And so working through how we can make sure that we put the students first, to me, is a big challenge, but the most important one. Alison will be speaking at the AUA annual conference at the University of Manchester on 7th to the 8th of July, and you can find links in the show notes or find out more at aua.ac.uk. Now, something's afoot in the Labour Party's tuition fees policy. Martha, what's going on there? So this is the news that Labour leader Keir Starmer has confirmed at a new statesman event that he has set aside the previous party manifesto and he's starting from scratch on a new one. In particular, this could mean changes to Labour promises on scrapping tuition fees, though he hasn't yet said what direction he'd want to take on this. What we know so far about this new manifesto is that he wants it to focus on growing the economy and investing in the next generation of jobs and technologies. But when asked specifically about tuition fees, he would only say that the current arrangements don't really work for students or for universities. Um, His colleagues in the Labour Party have expressed some concerns, believing that the next election will be fought solely on the economy may mean him not picking policies that would have a greater impact on voters. Scrapping tuition fees, as proposed in the 2019 manifesto and not long afterwards in the leadership campaign, was given an estimated cost of £7.2 billion, but things have changed quite significantly since then. Um, demographics are changing. There's been that surge of 18-year-olds coming through uh, with no, no expected decrease in demand for places at university. Cost of living increases. Uh, Inflation is currently at 11%. And the freeze in tuition fees at 2017 levels, which is expected to last until at least 2014. All of this has already impacted um, universities. Some 
um, some students reporting that they're not able to get their first choice place. Um, places could be hard, becoming harder to come by. Um, we've also seen quite a few new stories recently about um, the impact of tightening resources in universities, whether that's um, courses being closed, other courses running at a deficit. And there's even one about um, some members of staff having to resort to food banks to get by. Um, now, we don't know what solution the uh, Labour Party will go for. Um, he may decide to raise the level of tuition fees to match the uh, expenditure going on. Uh, it could reduce the headline fee, although we know that didn't work very well uh, with uh, Ed Miliband. There has also been some ideas around graduate tax and, and various ways that that could work. Um, or they might just try and ignore the issue completely. Johnny, I think the sector never really believed that their party was going to abolish fees in, in the first place, did they? Well, they can't now um, because, firstly, it would look unaffordable, whether it is or not, it's a matter of opinion and economic model. But um, secondly, it would mean... That or or matter of priority. You <laughs> exactly. choose to spend the money on it, but it's... Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Um, uh, and the second reason is it would it would mean that the expansion of higher education would be very expensive. So they'd probably need to impose number caps. All of this looks very bad for access, social mobility. And the third reason um, is that it might also look like a subsidy from those who don't get to go to university to those who do. Um, so for those reasons, I don't think that they're going to, you know, I think they will abandon the idea of scrapping um, tuition fees. Um, the, you know, they're, they're going to need to look for another solution and they could go with the graduate tax, but actually that's, that's not a great solution either. Um, it's a particularly bad solution for the sector, if you ask me, because, um, it would mean that the HE sector is constantly going into a battle with government over what is adequate funding. And in that battle, we're always going to be trying to argue that our value is greater than hospitals, housing, hardship, you know, these are not fights we want to have. Um, and so they are really caught between a rock and a hard place with all of the different options. They have to try something innovative and new, I think. And um, I mean, I, I have three suggestions about what um, the Labour Party or indeed any party should be doing on, um, on, he funding um the first is going back to an idea that i published in a paper for happy um a couple of years ago which is the idea of a graduate levy on employers uh, where basically instead of graduates paying off loans the employer makes the payment instead we don't call it a loan we've got rid of student debt um and um, that levy should go back to the university where they studied, which means that both the student and the university are jointly invested in um, their future employability. And it also gives employers skin in the game to ensure that the skills demand is matched with skills supply. Um, if you want to read more about that, um, just Google fairer funding and HEPI. Um, my second suggestion is that the Labour Party should come up with a really good offer on maintenance. The Conservatives have left the goal wide open on this by not returning to maintenance grants. It wouldn't have cost very much um, to have returned to the maintenance grants because of the RAB charge. 
um, anyway on part of the lending. So um, there is room, fiscal room, to um, return to maintenance grants and make a much better offer on maintenance. Um, the third thing that the Labour Party could look at is to steal the lifelong loan entitlement proposal um, to support it, make it bigger, and to say everyone has a right to the equivalent of four years funding through a loan or graduate levy to further their learning. Um, and you can take your whole life to take up those four years equivalent. And that means it's no longer about um, university students versus the other 50%, because everyone has the same right to the same funding. Mm. Well, some some good ideas there, Johnny. I mean, but DK, surely the the answer is um, not go anywhere near any of them and say we'll we'll kind of review it and when we get into uh, when we get into government. Well, I mean that has been the policy of the Labour Party for pretty much the past four or five years. Uh, there has not been any policy at all on higher education, with the exception of the promise to remove fees, which never really convinced anybody and would cost a vast amount of money. And uh, the National Education Service, which was lovingly ripped off by the current uh, government for the lifelong loan entitlement idea. Um, as far as the next election uh, goes, unless something untoward happens, um, it would make a lot more sense for the, the manifesto, certainly, to stay away from the idea of higher education more generally, unless, as um, Johnny and Martha have both hinted, they, did, they do something substantial and meaningful on student maintenance support, which is the, the big issue that is uh, coming up over this year and the next year. I predict in September, October, November, we're going to see a load of stories about students being unable to eat, being forced to drop out of their studies because they can't afford the cost of living. And this is going to be something that Labour should absolutely be stepping up and saying, look, we need to do a lot better on this. Uh, the, the, the problem with that is that you, you can't just announce one of these things without having at least thought through the answers to everything else. So you, you announce a policy on maintenance. And of course, the, the first question will be, well, how many students do you think there should be? Are there too many students that go to university? You know, if so, um, how are we going to fund it differently? Should we be doing something with tuition fees? You know, you get there in a hop, skip and a jump. Very, yeah, very yeah, everything ends up. Everything yeah. ends up being about tuition fees in the end and everything ends up being tweaks to the current system. We're basically experiencing a kind of policy chilling effect here in that anybody who speaks out against the current system is in favour of number controls and thus is against aspiration and thus is a terrible person who is doing the country down. All of this ignores the fact the current system is not working. It was never going to work. We said in 2012 on Wonky it was never going to work. Exactly the problems we predicted, the fact it was going to get really expensive, the fact that fees were not going to rise with inflation because it would be too difficult to get it through Parliament every time, has happened. Um, now you Universities, colleges, higher education providers are feeling the problem. We've just had some quite concerning financial data drop from OFS, which you can read about on the site. Um, 
And, you know, we haven't got another answer to deal with this. We need to have a full and fundamental review that um, goes beyond what Olga did. And I just can't see that happening at the moment. I, I think we're we're just not inventive enough about it. We're stuck in the idea that we should tweak the system. It's n- Tweaks aren't going to cut it. The, there's a fundamental problem with the way that... Um, higher education is funded in this country yeah i completely agree yeah i mean but but we uh, we have four stakeholders and they're all pulling in different directions the stakeholders that are the national interest the student interest the employer interest and the providers and at the moment they all want different things because the system is aligned to incentivize them to pull in those different directions we need to tweak the system to focus on the common goals, which are that everybody wants a high-quality um, education system uh, that is affordable to students and delivers um, employable graduates um, to fill skills gaps. And at the moment, the system uh, goes... In. Those, those common interests are set in competition with each other rather than being aligned with each other, which is why, of course, I suggested the graduate levy, which does align those. Um, but, I mean, Martha, is there any chance of there being a single funding model that meets the need of a small specialist provider like FutureWorks and a big, um, massive uh, traditional university like Manchester Met or Manchester? Um, is there a single answer here? Uh, probably not, no. Um, I think that it, it's, a, it's a very complex issue and I think the idea of having a single um, policy around just what the fee is is a very good way to grab headlines and, and start people talking but it doesn't actually get down to the business of solving things for the students and for the providers to ensure that we get the, the graduates and, and the skills that we need. So that's about it for this week. Remember to dig a bit deeper into anything we discussed today. You'll find links in the show notes on wonky.com. Don't forget you can subscribe to the podcast automatically. Just search for The Wonky Show via Spotify, Apple or Google Podcasts, or wherever else to listen. And to keep you and your organisation ahead of everything that's going on in UKHE, do head to the website to find out more about our subscription services. So thank you very much to Martha, Johnny, DK, and everyone at Team Wonky that helps make the show happen. Until next week, stay wonky. Stay wonky.